Father, that's our cry this morning. God, as we just come before you, God, we just want to be a people that is surrendered to you and surrendered to your work, surrendered to what you want to do, God, in us. And we just ask this morning, God, as we carry on with service, as we hear the word that you've given Brother Lee this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Lord, change us where we need to be changed this morning and just have your way in us, Lord. We love you. We give this service to you. and We pray that you'd be honored through it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. In my time in Uganda, I, I observed three children, three, well, actually one teenager and two children, one 10-year-old and about a 12 or 13-year-old boy and a teenage girl. And uh, throughout the course of those that time, I, I just couldn't help observe that they were really well-behaved kids, really well-behaved. Matter of fact, too well-behaved, I was thinking. And uh, I asked one day, I, I just said, tell me about these three kids. Amy, what's going on here? These are really well-behaved children. And uh, she uh, said, yep, yeah. her mom, their mom has an unusual way of uh, an unusual way of disciplining them. And I said, what does she do? She says, well, if those kids do something that deserves a a uh, pretty good act of discipline. She doesn't say a thing to him. Said she doesn't say a thing to him. Said no. She just doesn't say a thing to him, and she uh, uh, just waits. And they go to bed, and then uh, at five o'clock in the morning, she wakes those kids up or whoever it was that misbehaved, and she takes a sugar cane and gives them a good whooping. And man, I got to thinking about that. That may be one of the best tools of discipline I've ever heard of. If you put me in that place, so you're going, so, so I do something and I know I'm wrong. And obviously those kids are wrong. So they got to lay in bed and they're looking over there at their mom and the mom hadn't showed her hand. And so they've got to either go to sleep or not go to sleep and stay up all night wondering, you know, when does five o'clock come around and five o'clock is the judgment time. And then, of course, then uh, my body does not do well with my I don't know if I've got something in me that gets to the point here. But whoop. <laughs> so anyway, they go to bed not knowing whether or not um, they're going to get whooped or not. And so she wakes them up with her sugar cane and gives them a good smack. Now, those kids are, are happy. They are at peace. They are energetic. They're normal little kids. But they've had some discipline in their life, and it shows. They're able to sit all day long when their mom wants them to and does the, the work that they do. I mean, it to me, it's boring. I mean, they have a good time with it, and they laugh and cut up, but... Uh, those kids do, if she says, go and get some uh, uh, water or go and get this or go and get the tea for, for a little tea time, boy, they, they're out the door. When uh, our son was, uh, 
in school here. I believe he was either the ninth or maybe perhaps the eighth grade, probably the ninth grade. I got a call from the principal, and they asked me to go up to the school, and, you know, I'm going, hey, here we go. So uh, I go up to the school and sit down with the principal, and, uh, you know, she lets me know that uh, my son has been causing a little trouble in one of the classes, and I said, what's he doing? She told me what he's doing, and I said, well, I said, I'm sorry this is going on. I'll sure talk to him, but man, y'all got, you know, y'all just take him out of class and give him a, give him a bust and it'll be all right. And uh, we hadn't been here very long when that took place. And uh, she said, um, oh, no, we don't do that here. And I said, what do you mean? Y'all don't do that here. Do it. Get after it. And uh, she said, we, d- we don't. There's, there's no paddling going on here in our school district. And I said, no, I'm giving you permission. Go ahead. Take him out of the class. And I tell you, if you'll get the coach to do it, he for sure won't be messing up. Let him whip him a few times. And uh, she said, oh, no, no, no. We're, we're more enlightened than that, and that's uh, in the dark ages, and we just don't paddle like that. And I said, well, I, I don't agree with that myself. I think a good judgment is a good thing. And if, you, uh, if you'll... But you have my permission. I won't sue you. I won't complain. Uh, you know, just stop short of killing him, and it's going to be all right. <laughs> but uh, and 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 look how society is today. Now, me talking about paddling is really uh, politically incorrect, isn't it? PC, they call it politically incorrect. Yeah, PC is politically correct. Not good. We don't paddle today. We've been enlightened. And uh, uh, I I see us having more and more and more trouble with kids at school because there's a lack of judgment to come. The fear of judgment is not there. You see, I think fear of judgment is a good thing. And I think when we lose that fear of judgment, then it's not a good thing. Several uh, weeks or probably several months ago now, I was talking with a man and, and I was doing my best to share with him about our good Lord Jesus. And as I was sharing with him about Jesus, uh, he, he said, now, you know, this judgment thing that you Bible believers, Bible thumpers is what he said, what y'all believe in, it really does put your God in a real bad place. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, think about it. You know, y'all say God is love and God is this and God provides and does all these things. How, how can, if God is God and he's pure and he's be above everything, how can there be judgment? He said, I, I, just, don't, I just don't buy that. And I said, well, I, I'm right with you except for one thing. He said, what is that? I said, I agree with you. Uh, judgment coming to this world would really put God in a bad place. It would be a bad thing, and it would be very difficult to understand if it wasn't for Jesus on the cross. And he said, well, well, what do you mean by that? I said, well, when Jesus died on the cross, he took on all the sins of the world, and literally all the sin of the world was judged horribly on his own son. And so since that happened, I'm here to tell you, I think that God has every right to judge any old way he wants. 
He has the right. He has the authority. So for me, I'm believing that what the Bible has to say about Jesus and judgment is true. And my faith is in what the Bible has to say. And if your faith is not in what the Bible has to say, I, I, I'm sorry, sir, but, but you're taking a huge, huge gamble with your spiritual life. He said, well, I don't believe in life. I think that when you die, that's all there is. And I was able to share with him as loving as I could, if, if you're right, all's good, but if you're wrong, oh my. He says, well, I'll just have to take that chance. And I said, I don't understand that. I, I'm not, I, I just want, I'm not going to take a chance with what I see the Bible talking about, about Jesus. If I'm wrong, okay, I'm wrong. I have not been hurt anybody following Jesus. I've had lots of good times. And if it's just uh, following the words of a sage or the words of a real, uh, you know, uh, deep thinker and a good thought and someone who just, you know, if Jesus was just a sociologist. If he just taught us a good way to live, then, then I'm okay. It's bettered my life while I'm here. But sir, if you're wrong, if you're wrong, man, judgment, judgment. I think judgment is healthy for us. It helps us keep things in perspective. I think judgment makes the best of us. It helps us to re be able to really put into the right place about what really is anguish-worthy in our life and what is not. You see, the fact that judgment is to come and the fact that Jesus clearly talks about judgment, and we're going to talk about it here today, it gives us our greatest problem. And when our greatest problem is not judgment and it's something else, then we've got things out of order a little bit. Our greatest problem is that people that we love and people that we know and our family and our friends, if they don't have Jesus Christ in their life, they will experience weeping and gnashing. They will experience horrendous eternity. That should keep our problems in check. We don't have a problem in regard to that. By comparison, we don't really have any problems when you consider judgment. Now, Jesus has talked about the end times, the signs of times in Matthew 24. And because of what he has to say in the very first part of Matthew 24, I think Jesus is worth listening to. As Jesus says, he talks about all the buildings, the, the, the temple itself. He talks about all the outside buildings around the temple. And the, and the disciples are marveling about all, the, all these buildings. And he says, I tell you the truth, look at all these buildings. They're going to just be torn down. They're not going to remain. And sure enough, in 70 A.D., that's exactly what happened. The Romans absolutely uh, just uh, fought against the uh, uprisal of the Jews, and it took four years, but they shut them down. And it was a, a, a great loss of life during those four years of time. Today, the Jewish people cannot go into the Holy of Holies and have Yom Kippur, experience to have those 
uh, all the different feasts and festivals and sacrifices take place because it's not there. The opportunity is not there. And the closest they're able to get is the wailing wall. And if you go through and you look at these other signs that Jesus gives, he, it's very clear that, that these things are taking place. Now, if he was just a sociologist, if he was just a, a pretty glued-in teacher about how life ought to be lived, I mean, he, he got so many things correct. What, if, what is our biggest problems? Well, many being deceived. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes and famines are huge on the list. Sin being rampant, we really struggle with that. People that don't believe in sin in our world today and, and those who are intellectually stimulated and have a higher form of learning, they're telling us that sin doesn't exist. Sin's our problem. I mean, the, the deal in Las Vegas, it was the man's sin that took him there. Now, we can study him, you know, psychology, psychology regards and those things, and we can say it's because of this and that, and I'm sure things like that are going to come out. But the bottom line is, had his sin nature was in control of his life. How else could it be? And so the sin of many will be rampant. And, of course, it says the love of many will grow cold. Before Jesus comes back, the love of many are going to grow cold. Well, look what we're dealing with today. We're dealing with a huge, you know, percentage of our society that their love's cold. Now, I don't understand what happened with the man with a three-year-old, but you don't put a three-year-old outside your door at three o'clock in the morning or whatever it is. I'm just thinking now something's not right with all that. I don't know. I haven't been checking up on that story and I may be out of turn here, but there's got to be a problem there somewhere. There's got to be a problem. And so Jesus goes through and he talks about that at the same time, there will be a great falling away and there will be a great movement in the church to take the gospel to all the world. And so you're going to have conflict in the church. You're going to have issues in the church. For that to happen, you're going to have a group of people in the church saying, let's not do anything. Let's just sit here. Let's just take care of ourselves. And, and that group will, will, will fall away from faith. And there's going to be a real gung-ho group that says, no, let's believe Jesus at his word and let's take the good news to all the world that we can. And that's happening right now. I believe with all my heart that's happening. Now, it's happening here in the States, but it's happening across the world. And, and we, have, we have always been, for the last many, many years, the largest sending country in the world, as far as churches are concerned, sending missionaries, sending evangelists, sending hope into the world. We are no longer the biggest sending nation in the world. We are, we are third or fourth to places like China, Korea, and even Australia is picking up some steam. And there's other countries that are picking up steam in that regard. So it's a beautiful thing that's taken place. And Jesus said it would. So he's worth listening to. At least we have to say here today, he's worth listening to. So we've seen three parables. We've already talked about two of them. And in order to answer the question, are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? 
Jesus shares three parables. He shared the parable of the five wise bridesmaids and the five unwise bridesmaids. The wise bridesmaids had the oil that allowed them to enter the home. The, the five unwise bridesmaids had to go buy some oil for them. And when they came back, the door to the groom's house was locked. And they're on the outside trying to get in. And of course, depart, I never knew you. And then we have the parable of the talents. Five talents, two talents, and one talent. We know that it's large uh, sums of resources. And, and the New Living Translation talks about bags of silver. And it was at least six, uh, a talent was at least 16 years of your salary. So if we take your 16 years, it pull it up. That's a lot of income, right? That's a lot of money. And so the two, the guy that got the five and the guy that got the two invested. And there was a return in what they invested in. But the one didn't do anything. He buried it in the ground. He didn't invest. And the lesson for us of this is that when Jesus is in our life, there is going to be an investment of ourselves in the kingdom of God. And so he's given us some signs. The, the signs of the parable of the ten bridesmaids is you've got to be ready. Ready for when he comes. Born again. Believing. In touch. Ready to go. Have the Holy Spirit in your heart. The second was is you're going to invest. You're not just going to sit. You're not just going to go to church. And that's all there is. And, and we all know that's a, that's an epidemic today is people say, I just want to go to church. I hear this more times than, than I, than I realize in the course of time. If you know, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard this, what I have, I just want to go somewhere where I can hide. I just want to go somewhere where I can go to church. I can just go to church and sit there and do the church thing and leave. Well, that's, that may be your desire, but that's not of the Lord. That's not of the Lord. That's not what He wants. The Holy Spirit never allows you to settle for that. He's always at work in you to glorify Him, to make most of Him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So there's an investment. And now we turn to the next parable, the third parable, the final parable in this, in trying to help us understand if we're ready for the return of Christ or not. And it's about the final judgment. So let's read this parable. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. Wow. Verse 31 just gives us insight into what it's going to be like in the second coming. The first coming was a little child, a little baby, of course, in a manger in lowly Bethlehem. I mean... There wasn't a lot of fanfare. Of course, there was with King Herod and the wise men and all that, and, and God was certainly orchestrating all those events. But when He returns the second time, everyone is going to know it. There's going to be no question about it. There's going to be no misunderstanding about this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, His glory is so magnificent, there's not going to be any question that that's Jesus. And all the angels with him, there's millions of them. What a deal that's going to be. What that will look like is, is beyond comprehension. And he's going to sit on his glorious throne. 
And so when Jesus returns, there's just no doubt that He is the Lord of all. Verse 32 says, All the nations will be gathered in His presence, and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, verse 32 is important for us to understand. Don't lose the people in the metaphor or the illustration of the sheep and the goats. So during the course of the day, before the shepherd would put his sheep to the safe place that he would have to put them to bed at night, goats who are hard to deal with, who are hard to control, who don't herd well, uh, they would intermingle with the sheep. Maybe they met each other at the watering hole. Here comes the goats. The goats are there. Goats don't travel as well in herds like sheep do. They don't travel, they don't follow well like sheep do. But what that shepherd would do nearly every evening, he didn't want those nasty old goats in the pen with the sheep. And the pen would be a cave on one of the sides of the hills, and they would build a, uh, 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 they would build a uh, three-sided wall outside that cave and have a door in it. So when Jesus says, I am the door, that's, that's literally what he's talking about there. And that shepherd would sit there at that door, but before he would get his sheep in there, he would separate the sheep from the goat. So it's, this is not about those who are saved are sheep and those who are lost are goats, which there are some lesson there, I suppose, for us. But it's just putting it in terms that everyone understands. Everyone understood the idea of the bridesmaids with the oil in the lamps. Everybody understood the talents. And here, everyone understands a separation from the sheep and the goats. Now, there's separation. Clear separation. The people are separated. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats on his left. Clear separation is made. That's our greatest problem. If you have a problem that's wearing you out right now, that is causing you great anguish, you need to hold it up beside this problem. Judgment to come. We have no problems that even come close to this. Understanding judgment to come is a healthy thing for us. First of all, it's healthy because it's true. But it's healthy because it helps us to separate ourselves from what really truly matters and what truly doesn't matter in degree to this. And so consider what you anguish over. You anguish over this. You anguish over money, perhaps. You anguish over a problem. How does it compare with judgment to come? Verse 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come to you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. 
I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. The least of these are those who are beneath in circumstances, in, in, in the quality of life. We're always looking down to help others. That's what the Scripture says for us to do. Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor. He's called us to preach the gospel to the poor. He's called us to look around and see where the hurting are, and we minister to them. That's what He wants of us. It's the least of these. And so what is there about these sheep? What is it about these sheep that He places on His right? It's about what they are about. It's about what they've done. Now, we understand works do not make us right with God. That's clear in Scripture. But works show that we're right with God. And so for those of us who are really wondering, struggling about our salvation, will we be sheep or goats? If that day comes tomorrow, when the clear separation is made, will we be on the right or left? Will we be a sheep or a goat? Well, we have three things to look at here in life. What is our life about? Is our life about Jesus and being ready? Is our life about investing in the kingdom and making a difference in our world? Is our life about helping other people? You see, if we're selfish, if we spend all our money on ourselves, if we spend all of our influence on ourselves, if we spend all of our experience taking care of ourselves, there's no clear sign, there's no evidence that the Lord is in us. Because these sheep met needs around them. Hungry, thirsty, naked, in jail, whatever the situation is. And these are just a list of what he shared here. But the least of these, there's a real desire among the sheep to minister to the least of these. That's a clear sign the Holy Spirit is in us. That is a clear sign we have been born again, that we are ready for the second coming of Christ. And then he says in verse 40, And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you. You cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Oh, man. That's the greatest problem. None of us have a problem worse than that. I mean, can you imagine some sitting around us today? 
that this will be what is declared over them at the judgment? I, I, I don't know that I can handle that that day. I don't know how... I, it, Jesus must do something supernatural to hold us together with that. I mean, can you imagine people that we love spending eternity apart from Him in hell? It's our biggest problem. It's anguish-worthy. It's what needs to stir in us. It needs to be what drives us. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. You didn't invite me into your house. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. I love Keith Green's song about this passage and going through the ones that didn't do it to the least of these. He says, Lord, come on. We didn't know your size on the clothes. If we didn't known you wanted a cheeseburger, we would have given you one. We didn't know. Sarcasm there. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or strange or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. Refusing to help me, refusing to help the least of these. Refusing. I read in a book some years ago about a guy that was asked to come and share some of the different events that the Lord had used him to be a part of that was making a difference in people's lives. And he described how the people lived. He described the third world country, the third world living. He described the hurts and the pains in that country. And he talked about how they were able to share Christ and and how that the Holy Spirit was at work, and they were ministering to the least of these, in other words. And throughout the course of time, they were trying to raise some money for this ministry to continue, and the amount was given. And the pastor got up and said, now we need to really give well tonight, because if we don't give well, then God may call some of us to go and be a part of that ministry. I don't know that he realized what he had said. Please give money because we don't want to go and help these people. Please meet this budget. Let's send this guy because he's willing to go. But man, we don't want any of our kids helping the least of these. We don't want any of our people being sent to help the least of these. We're okay with us in here. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about refusing to minister to the least of these. Now, we are saved by faith through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God and not of works, lest any of us should boast. We can't boast in our salvation. Romans 4 tells us we can't boast in our salvation. Abraham was saved by faith. We're all saved by faith. However, the Scripture is clear that evidence of that faith is clearly what we do and don't do. 
there should be great anguish in your life if you know loved ones who refuse to help the least, to invest in the kingdom, who are not ready for Jesus' return. Of examination that Jesus calls us to look at. Are you ready for the second coming of Christ? These parables give light to whether or not we're ready. As far as you have not done this to the least of them, you'll be thrown into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our greatest problem. Let's pray. Prepare us, Lord. Show us. Guide us. Lord, we recognize that your word provides for us what it means to follow you, to know you, to worship you, to live for you. And Lord, we have this very difficult parable that Jesus shared that ought to cause great examination in all of us, Lord. It ought to cause us to really consider our loved ones, friends, neighbors, co-workers, people we go to school with. Lord, what a horrible, horrible problem to consider people apart from you. May that motivate us. May your spirit use these words, Lord, to cause us to be faithful every single day. Because we know, Lord, that's what really matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, please come forward.